Our scripture this morning is from Acts chapter 1. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, it's printed in the bulletin. It's also going to be up behind me momentarily. It's on, pages, on page 6 with a place to take notes there on page 7. We're looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Give ear now, this is God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in, the, in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism until, of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. As we look into this text in Acts this morning, we're going to be looking at really the community of the church. We're talking about why do I need the church? And we talked last week about how we need loving authority. We need a champion, someone who has gone before us and done everything right, who can give us the merits of his work. But we also see in this passage indicates that we also need a community. We need a community. We need people around us. You know, as, as much as there are people in life who are introverts, Right, who really don't thrive to be around people, who, but who prefer to be alone, it seems to me that everyone, at some point in their lives, I mean, we all need friends. right? We all need relationships. And the problem that arises with that is that there are both benefits and disadvantages of having relationships. right? There's pros and cons to having people in your life. And uh, this passage shows us, really, I think a picture of what a healthy community looks like. 
Okay, and so we're going to look at this. We're going to see uh, in, in a few points. And this is also, remember, part two of a series that we're doing where we're trying to land in our discipleship plan. You know, last week we handed out these brochures. If you got one, great. If you didn't get one, you can grab, um, there's, there should be a stack of brochures outside. Part one and part two, just we've been talking about what does healthy Christian living look like? What does it mean to grow spiritually? We've tried to sum it up in these two short brochures that not only can help you know better what God expects from you, but also how do you put it into practice? You know, how do you grow spiritually? And then how do you help other people grow? You know, how can you be a vital member of a community? How can you be a good friend to other people? And so make sure you get copies of those and read over them. Read over them because they're important. What we're going to see in our text today, really the characteristics of healthy churches. So we're going to see three points. You can take notes there on page seven. Um, we're going to see three things um, about healthy churches. First, they're honest about their problems. Okay, they're honest about their problems. Second, they solve problems together. And third, they need leadership. Okay, so they're honest about their problems. They solve their problems together and they need leadership. So first, healthy churches are honest about their problems. This whole passage, the main idea of this passage is the replacement of Judas as an apostle. Right? Jesus chose 12. Judas uh, betrayed Jesus, betrayed him not just in a small way, but betrayed him to his death. Um, and so Judas has been cast out of the community uh, by his own choice. Um, and this is the passage that talks about the replacement of Judas. It's interesting. Luke lists out who the 11 are uh, in, verse, um, in verse 13. He says... Yeah, these are the people who were saying Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas. There was another list in the first book that Luke wrote, in the Gospel of Luke. And it had 12 names. Here we have 11. And so it seems like Luke's listing of the 11 is what motivates the story of how they replaced that 12th person. Now, there are a couple of different accounts of Judas's death. Okay, and... As you, if, if you want to compare these things, Acts 1 talks about how Judas died or what happened to him. Matthew 27, verses 3 to 10, also describe what happened to Judas. And these two passages offer different but not irreconcilable perspectives on Judas's end, although there is some, you got to kind of fit the pieces together uh, as you look at the details. The point, though, is that both of these passages show that Judas's end is the resulting curse of what happens when someone rejects God. Okay, the death Judas dies is, um, it's looked on by everybody as a curse. I mean, Judas is clearly cursed in the way that he dies. And it's tied in in our story with the fact that he rejected Jesus, that he betrayed him, and he suffered a fate that was worthy of that betrayal. Now, talking about his death is one thing, but I think there's a lot of people that think, his betrayal itself, his life, including his betrayal, was almost just as problematic as his death, right? If you look at verse 17, it describes, Peter says that he, Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. That's a little bit like, how could this happen, right? I mean, Judas walked with Jesus for three years, Right? He was with him. He saw the miracles, probably even did miracles himself. And yet, this betrayal, I mean, how does that actually work? I mean, how could this happen? John chapter 12 
verses 4 to 6 to show us that Judas, even while he was part of the group, even early on in the ministry, throughout the ministry, Judas wasn't as concerned about Jesus. Uh, It says he was in it for the money. Okay, it says that Judas actually held the money bag for the apostles and the the group that followed Jesus, and he used to pilfer. He used to take things out of it for himself. And so, um, and unfortunately, this is just, this is reality, that any time you have, I mean, really this happens, I guess, in every religion, but it certainly happens in the church. I mean, we're infamous for it if we're going to own the sins of our brothers and our sisters. Not that we're without sin, but, um, but everybody understands. And, I mean, one reason why a lot of churches don't even talk about giving is because they're concerned not to be perceived as in it for the money, right? And so we don't want to be perceived like Judas, but this was Judas's situation. And who knows what led him to that? It could have been that he started out that way. It could also have been that Judas had a perception of what Jesus's kingdom was supposed to look like. And when Jesus's kingdom didn't look that way, Judas got frustrated. Judas got confused. Judas turned on Jesus and maybe that was part of his betrayal. I mean, we see even, I think, in a healthy way in chapter 1, um, verse, verse 6, even after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples were still trying to figure it all out. Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And Jesus says, I don't, you're not thinking about it right. You know, he corrects them. We talked about that last week. And so, um, so there's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing wrong with if you're frustrated by the way Jesus is working in your life. It's okay to be honest about that. But the difference is between do you go to Jesus with your question or do you turn from him and betray him? And Judas seems to be one who has betrayed Jesus. One of the other things we learn from this is it's the reality of the need for faith. Okay, I've heard so many people talk, uh, say this, and I think I've said it in different ways myself. Boy, if I just could have lived with Jesus, right? If Jesus either could be alive today and tell us what to do, or if I could have been alive back then and watched Jesus, well, then I would believe, or then I would understand. And I think what Judas teaches us is that, you know what, even back then, you needed faith. Even back then, you might not have needed faith in the miracles, because you could see those things. You could see the evidence of those things. But you might, you'd still need faith in the message of Jesus. Faith in Jesus' interpretation of what the miracles were about, of what his ministry was about. And Judas did not have faith. He didn't trust Jesus. And so for us, if Judas needed to have faith and his failure to have faith led him astray, how much more for us? You know, as we look for answers to questions, Luke's book is filled with evidences Right? Luke is concerned to make sure that we all know what the proof was of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, of what his ministry was like. And yet, we all need to have faith. There's a point at which it's not answers that we're looking for. You know, what we're really looking for, or, or I'm sorry, it's not answers that are going to necessarily get us the whole way to Jesus. There's a point at which you have to decide, am I going to orient my life around the authority of Jesus or not? You know, as you study, as you look at questions, if, if you're looking at apologetic stuff or evidences for, for this, that, or the other, there's a point at which you just have to ask yourself, am I willing to bow my knee to Jesus? Oftentimes, what can happen is, that once you do that, you get the answers that you're looking for. 
the evidence can become clearer. Sometimes believing results in seeing. What I think is good news about Judas is that the Bible doesn't hide what happened to him. Okay? Luke is open, not only about Judas, but about lots of the problems of the early church. And as you read the book of Acts, we're going to see him. We're going to see that it wasn't all perfect. One author said this, Luke is brutally honest about the church's early problems. You know, there was the need for a 12th apostle. There's a narrative in chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira, the lying donators. Um, We see later Simon Magus tries to buy the Spirit of God for money. And he was one of the members of the church. With Cornelius, the apostle Peter himself didn't get the message. You know, and so was embarrassed because it took him three revelations. Not one from God, but three revelations from God. That's in chapter 10. The Act Council in chapter 15, where people were struggling, like, what do we do with these Gentiles? These non-Jews are part of the church now. What do we do with them? You know, Acts is honest about the, <clears throat> the difficulty, the discussion, the arguments that went on about them. In Acts chapter 18, there's a Christian preacher who didn't even understand the baptism of Jesus and yet was preaching to everybody. You know, and so you have these things. This author concludes by saying Luke doesn't gild the lily or simply present an idealistic picture of the halcyon days of yore. I don't even know what halcyon means, but I just put it in there because it's part of the quote. Um, so he doesn't gild the lily. When I was in sales, um, you know, back when I was um, working in the workplace, we used to call it perfuming the pig, you know, where you just hide all the bad stuff because it's embarrassing, right? We don't want to admit that these things went on, and yet they did. And I just think it's good news. You need to know that the Bible is filled both with the, with the glorious picture of the work of Jesus, but also the mess that Jesus came to clean up, right? Because we all have mess. I mean, all of us do. There's all, we all have things in our lives that we would prefer not to, to, to have exposed. Um, and the good news here is that Jesus himself teaches us that his church is going to be messy. So if you see mess, it doesn't mean you're not in the right church. It means you are in a real church. And when you see mess, just get encouraged because you can say to yourself, instead of, oh, man, I don't want to be part of this, you can say, oh, hey, maybe now I can be honest about my mess. I mean, that's the joy in a sense. Um, Because what happens in the midst of these crazy pictures of problems in the church, and so... And if, if, if the book of Acts doesn't convince you, just start reading the epistles. If, you're, if you have this idealistic view of the early church, everybody says, oh, if we could just get to be like the early church again, which one do you want to be like? <laughs> do you want to be like Corinth? you want to be like Galatia? I mean, you know, you can pick your poison there. And, I mean, every group of people, when you get them together, is going to have problems. It's just the nature of having relationships. It's the nature of anybody who cares about each other, right? Every family on earth is testimony to the fact that when people care, There's problems. The problems don't go away. And so healthy churches are honest about their problems. Because in the midst of all of these pictures, in the midst of all these difficulties, people's lives are being changed. Truly, honestly changing from the inside out. People are working on their messes, and their messes are becoming cleaner. Okay, We've got to be careful, because it's not that if you come to the church, everything's going to get clean right away. 
right? Sometimes, I mean, I often say that as long as it took me to get into a mess, usually it takes me that long to get out, okay? I've been repenting in our corporate confession time. I've been repenting of the same sins that I'm desperately trying God to work out of my heart for at least a year now. Because I know that's how long it takes. And as I continue to confess, sometimes I realize new things about my mess. And I realize, oh, hey, there's this other area that I've got to work on too that connects to this. You know? and, and as we do that, it's little by little, grace upon grace upon grace. We begin to see things grow and change. And we're all in process. And so, uh, so good churches, healthy churches are honest about their problems. <clears throat> this brings us to our second point. Healthy churches also solve problems together. Okay? They solve problems together. Verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem and they were waiting. Right? Jesus had just ascended into heaven. He just commissioned them to be his witnesses to carry the good news all the way to the ends of the earth. You know, if you were there, what would you have done? You'd be tempted to go out and share, right? Start telling people about it. But instead, they returned to Jerusalem, and Jesus had told them in verse 4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which was the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so... This is good for us because if I was just given the commission to go change the world, <laughs> I'd start planning. Right, okay, how are we going to do this? How do we break up the world into bite-sized pieces? And then how do we develop a plan to reach? I mean, that's how I would go, right? And then I'd start thinking, well, we've got to get started here, right? How much time do we have? Like, i got 40, 40 more years left. Or, you, know, you think about that and you start moving. Well, they went and they waited. They waited. And this, again, this is good for us because when you don't know exactly what to do, you want to stick with what you do know. Okay? That's kind of the principle. Like, they didn't exactly know how they were going to take on the world, how they were going to witness to the whole world, but they did know that they were supposed to wait in Jerusalem. Okay? And so when you don't know what you're, you know, when you don't know what to do, stick with what you know. Okay? I remember when I was kicking the tires of Christianity, when I was thinking about becoming a Christian, and I was talking to a pastor, and, uh, and he was telling me, well, you know, telling me about God's abundant life and that God, you know, wants to work in your life and, and give you a life that's more meaningful, that's more significant. And I remember asking him, how am I going to know what it is God wants me to do? If I commit to Jesus and if I begin to follow him, well, is God going to leave me a voicemail or something? Is he going to write me a letter? And this pastor said, well, God has written you. A letter. He's written you 66 letters. They're the books of the Bible. And when he said that, I thought, oh, brother, that sounds so canned. I wonder how many times he said that to somebody. I, I didn't appreciate that very much when he said it because it just felt like one of those pat answers that you get from sometimes Christians do that. So I thought it was pretty cliche, but, you know, after the fact, it turns out, I mean, he was right. He was right because for me, I began to read the Bible, and for some reason, I began to have a sense of what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And again, when I'm uncertain, and I do this even to this day, when I'm uncertain about what to do, when I don't know which way to go, I stick with what I do know. I stick with God's Word. I study His Word. I, I say, okay, well, whether I, know, you know, whether I make this decision or whatever decision I make here, what do I, what do I know for sure God is calling me to do? 
And when I stick with that, it keeps me going while I wait for God's answers on the unclear. I mean, it's just kind of how it works. And that's what they did. That's what they did. So they returned to Jerusalem and they were together. They were together. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, it says, And all these, <clears throat> the 11 and the 120 others, they were all with one accord devoting themselves together. They were all together devoting themselves with one accord. And so they were devoting themselves to prayer. I mean, the, the verse says, and this is just a good picture of what we need. Especially when things are trying, especially when we have problems, we need a community, right? We need people around us. Yeah, we need this really on, on two fronts. You know, we need support of the community. Okay, we need to know, we need to be known and loved, right? We need people around us who know us and who care about us. We also need people who accept us and are patient with us, right? So they know that sometimes things take a long time to grow, and so they're not impatient with our, with our own personal growth. Yeah, so we need that support, and yet we also need a community of people around us who can speak into us, right? We need people who are willing to sometimes get up in our face and tell us what we need to hear. I mean, that's a healthy community that does both, right? And that's that balance, and it's hard sometimes because you don't know. Well, so you're listening to somebody, and you're thinking, well, so should I give this person a swift kick in the pants, or should I give them that encouragement, that, that support, that, hey, it's going to be okay, or don't worry about it, or, you know, even if things don't change, you still have the forgiveness of Jesus. You still have a relate, you know, and sometimes you do both. Sometimes, you know, you do one or the other. I mean, that's part of the process, but, but this is what we need. I mean, all of us need this. Um, and so one of the things that promotes this almost more than anything else is prayer. It's not just when we are together, but when we take that next step and actually pray together, something happens to a relationship when people are praying together. Okay. And if you've done this before, you, you have a sense of what this means. When you go to the Lord, when you experience the presence of God with somebody else, when you do this in your community groups, when you do this with your spouse, when you do this with a friend, you, you have the sense that there's something more going on. You're pleading for someone else before God's throne. They're hearing your heartfelt cry for their good before God. I mean, when that happens, it binds you closer together. One author said this, it's precisely in worship and prayer that we, while still on earth, find ourselves sharing in the life of heaven where Jesus is. That's big. Last week we talked all about the ascension of Jesus and how in his ascension, Jesus joined heaven and earth together. Well, for us, when we devote ourselves to prayer and when we do it together in community, we actually participate in the life of heaven. That's sometimes when heaven opens and we receive a fresh word from the Lord. We receive fresh wisdom from God. We receive fresh strength and encouragement because it's, it recenters us. It's like rebooting for us sometimes to go to the Lord because we're reconnecting to heaven and heaven's perspective. This author continued on. He said, this is how these very ordinary, frequently muddled, deeply human beings 
could connect with the risen and ascended Jesus. And it's through prayer that we too can know, enjoy, and be energized by the life of heaven right here on earth. This is what we're trying to foster even on Sunday mornings with worship. Yeah, we pray to the Lord. We listen to his word. Right? He speaks to us. He calls us to worship. We respond with prayer and praise. You know, sometimes singing to God is, is a, it's a form of prayer. Okay, and so we pray to God, God, <clears throat> then we confess our sins and God gives assurance of forgiveness, right? It's what we're trying to do in worship is connect heaven and earth. We're trying to join ourselves to God and his perspective so that we can receive his grace and his forgiveness and his wisdom so that we can get through another week, so we can go out and serve him for another week. I mean, that's the joy of the church gathered. And here's what's interesting is that when the church seeks uh, unity and looks together to solve its problems, answers come. It seems as though the text is indicating that it's their devotion to prayer that inspires them to know they need to replace Judas. Okay? It's after they're devoting themselves together in prayer that Peter stands up and talks about how they need to replace Judas. And again, so now I'm imagining what was going on. Like, how do you get from praying together as 120 people to what Peter got up and did? Because there is no indication from the text that Jesus said, oh, by the way, one of the things you need to do while you're waiting is you need to find a replacement for Judas. There's no indication of that. And it seems as though as they were seeking the Lord, as they were together, they were praying, they began to grasp God's plan. They began to understand and they were putting pieces together about what God was doing through Jesus. Jesus came and established. He chose 12 because he was saying that his followers, the church, were going to be the new Israel. Okay, Israel was made up of 12 tribes, right? They were the sons of Jacob, 12 sons, and each one had a place in the land. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And so when Jesus chose 12 apostles to be the head of his followers, he was saying that what he is doing is he is reconstituting Israel. He is reestablishing Israel from scratch. I mean, not quite from scratch, because the, the 12 that he chose were, were faithful Jews, Um, But Jesus was replacing the 12 tribes of Israel with his 12 apostles. That's why there were 12. But now, I mean, they were one patriarch short of a full deck. You know, with 11, how do you, you can't go out and say, okay, Jesus was reforming Israel. Jesus is redoing this and all 11 of us are here to, you know, be this, you know, it doesn't kind of, it just doesn't work. Okay. And so they have the sense that, okay, well, part of the process. And then as they begin to pour over scripture, and they seek the Lord in prayer, they came to the conclusion that God was used by, or God used Judas's betrayal. Okay, we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, as they begin to talk about Jesus and his death and resurrection, that it wasn't a surprise to God, that God wasn't surprised by what happened to his son, that it was part of his plan. And so here in this text, we see that even Judas's betrayal was part of what God used to bring about the salvation of the world. And as they think about Judas's betrayal, they realize, wait a minute, you know what? This isn't the first time this has happened. Jesus came to be the king of Israel. He came to establish the kingdom of God on earth. 
And yet we remember as we've, you know, because as we've thought through and remember our, our own Hebrew scriptures, there were a lot of places where the king of Israel talked about people who betrayed them. And even David. And so Peter goes to two Psalms that are Psalms of David, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Those are the places that Peter quotes when he says in verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's from Psalm 69. Okay, and so Peter is remembering the Psalm and saying, hold on. So King David had someone who betrayed him while he was king. And this was a prayer that David offered in response to that betrayal. And so Peter thinks through that psalm, probably had it memorized. Most of the Israelites had the whole book of Psalms memorized, let alone other portions of the Old Testament. And so Peter is running through this and realizing that what happened to Judas is very similar to what David prayed would happen to his betrayer. Do you understand the connections here? And so David is saying, or Peter's realizing, wow, Jesus is like David, only even more significant. Because the betrayer of David didn't kill David. And so Peter begins to connect the dots and he realizes that Psalm 69 indicates the fate of those who oppose God's leaders. And that's what happened to Judas. And then he sees another, in another Psalm, Psalm 109, where he quotes this, let another take his office. That's a portion of Psalm 109 that also talks about what should happen when, to, to God's bad leaders. When leadership falls and it's, it's gotten rid of, when it's, uh, then it needs to be replaced. And so Peter puts these things together and realizes we need to, we need to come up with the 12th. That Jesus, his plan was for 12, uh, for 12 apostles to reconstitute Israel. And so with Judas's fate, as one who's betrayed, we need to replace him. And so that's what comes out and that's what produces the speech of Peter, he stands up with confidence. And it's interesting because, again, this confidence, this wisdom, this direction came through his prayer. As he prayed and sought the Lord, as he walked through the scriptures that, he, that, that, that related to what Jesus had gone through, he comes to this conclusion and reasons out that they need to replace Judas. And Peter was probably motivated also by Jesus' promise. Jesus said... Uh, in Matthew 19, 28, that, uh, that the 12 were going to reign on 12 thrones with him over the tribes of Israel. Okay, and they only have 11, so they've got so to replace him. Now, the pattern that they take is, I think, very telling for us, and it also, I think, will help us, because while we don't have the ability to perfectly interpret the scriptures, Okay, Peter pulls these psalms out and applies them um, in ways that make incredible sense. I mean, they fit the context. You, know, you can see the connections, but we have to be more careful because we don't exactly know sometimes as we interpret Scripture when it's being fulfilled and when it's not. But here's what they do. In verse 22, it says, they, they describe, actually verses 21 and 22, Peter describes um, who can take the office. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during, the t- during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. Okay, one of these men must be brought, become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so Peter describes, this is sort of the objective qualifications to be an apostle. Okay, and this fits with what Jesus said, because Jesus said, you need to be my witnesses. You're going to testify of me, 
we find out um, that, so we have the, the description. So Peter says this is the, the job description, in a sense, in verses 21 and 22. And then second, they, they find who fits. And so these two men fit. You've got uh, Barsabbas, and, or Joseph, and then you have Matthias. And so these two fit, verse 23. Well, then they seek the Lord in verse 24. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen. And so again, it's, they're, being, they're taking the job description, they're taking their own evaluation of the people who are available to them, and then they seek the Lord. Right? So you have a really good balance of both the human and the divine in this decision process. And then they cast lots. Okay, now, um, lot casting is something that's all over the Old Testament. It was, this was something that was, common, was commonly done. Um, Numbers 26, verses 55 and 56, you can look at. 1 Chronicles 24 to 26, the responsibilities of God's leaders were apportioned out by lot. And so, again, here you have the responsibility of a leader, and so they, go to, they, they use lots. These were probably either stones or pottery shards. I've actually seen pictures of these. They actually found some in, in Masada in, the, in, in Israel where they've got these stones that have names written on them. And, uh, and you could actually, go, if you go online, you could, see, you could see a picture of these stones with Hebrew writing on them. And what they, they, they say what happened was they would put them in a bag or some vessel and they would shake it up until one fell out. Okay, and that was the one that God chose. And that's the process that they went on or that they took. Proverbs 16.33 gives justification for this. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so God, in his covenant with Israel, you know, part of his relationship with them was that God was saying, I will answer your questions according to the casting of lots. And so that they knew that when that came out, when that answer came, that was God speaking. That was God speaking. So we happen to have some lots if you want to buy them in the lot. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Because kidding. <clears throat> that's frustrating, right? I mean, I'm, I'm with you right up to there. Okay, I get a sense of the job description, a sense of what the options are, who, you know, who fulfills it. Prayer, I understand that. Lots. I'm lost, right? We just lost out. We can't follow this. Um, one author said this. It's interesting. I think this is powerful, too. It's, uh, one author said, this guy's named Fernando. Um, I, I got this as a quote from another author, so I don't even know where this book is, but I can find it if you want it. He said this. He said that lots actually cease to be used after the Holy Spirit comes. Because in Acts chapter 6, when they choose the seven, and in Acts chapter 13, the next two selections of people are done without the casting of lots. And so it's interesting that the Bible, the New Testament pretty clearly indicates that when the Spirit comes, God's people go from being underaged to mature. And with that maturity comes the ability to make decisions without the need for casting lots. And so that's interesting. So what that means for us is that we actually can follow a version of this as we make decisions in our own lives. You know, we talked about this not too long ago in a sermon about decision-making. But essentially, you know, we look first to the Word. If you're trying to make a decision, if it's what job do I take, who do I marry, where, where should I live, you know, should I buy or rent, I mean, any decision that you want to make in life, 
you can follow a pretty similar pathway in terms of making a decision. You first look to the word. What does God's word say? And we said that was opening your eyes, right? Remember opening your eyes, your ears, and your hands? You open your eyes and say, what does God's word say here? What can I be sure of about this decision? Okay, and then you open your ears and you begin to seek the advice of other people. What, what experiences have other people had that would give me more truth to help me make this decision? And in the same time, you seek the Lord. Lord, speak to me. Tell me, is there something I should be thinking about? Are there people that I should be talking to to help me make this decision? You know, and then you open your hand. You make the decision before the Lord and say, God, here's what I think is best. And so, again, I think what they did is very similar to the process that Scripture lines out for us um, to make decisions. And so, with this, healthy churches solving problems together, they made a public decision, right? It was part of the community because this was leadership. Um, the decision of, of who the next leader would be was made as part of the community. And obviously there was leadership there, but, uh, but the community was making that decision. And healthy churches do that. Major decisions that are getting made. I mean, as Presbyterians, we don't call a pastor without a vote, right? At Harbor, we typically will bring someone in and test their gifts and test their fit before we even have a vote, right? So we can get to know them. And that's the process that I went through as I was coming down. And so, again, um, as you think about decisions in your own lives, don't don't divorce yourself from the community. Um, Look to others. Look to your community group. Look to friends and relationships in the church because we can make decisions together that tend to be healthier than what we do on our own. Proverbs says with, you know, with many counselors comes wisdom. Wisdom, and so... Okay, so that's our, our second point, is that healthy churches solve problems together. And then our third point is that uh, healthy churches need leadership. Okay, they need leadership. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's thought, well, if the church is really healthy, we shouldn't need leaders, right? Or if a community is really healthy, what, you know, what are leaders for? Leaders, all they do is they sort of lord authority over people. They tell people what to do. You know, we don't really need leaders if we're acting in a healthy way. I, I would say this passage tells us that that's not really the case. Um, but in order to have good leadership, you need to understand what leadership is for, okay? And so I want to talk about what leadership was for them, and then we'll talk about what leadership is for us today, Verses 21 and 22 describe what they were looking for in a replacement for Judas. Okay, these are, this, they were looking for someone who could be a witness to Jesus' resurrection. Okay, and so this is someone not only who saw Jesus risen from the dead, but someone who had actually been in the ministry of Jesus from the time of his baptism. So we're talking about three years being with Jesus They wanted to make sure that whoever replaced him as an apostle could actually be a true witness, right? Someone who could testify to the things that they saw, the things that they heard, and who could say, look, I was there, I saw it happen, okay? An eyewitness. And it's interesting, I think what we see here, and this this shows us that what they were looking for was unique and unrepeatable, okay? Not everybody qualified here, even among those 120 people, Not necessarily everybody qualified because not everybody met the description. Not everybody was with Jesus for his three years. And so, but these apostles, these witnesses, Jesus wants to make sure that the authority, that the authority, the people who are going to testify 
for him are people who knew him. Okay, he wants to make sure that the people that were testifying for him could say, look, we've seen him, we've touched him. We've seen him in, in, in his life. We saw him in his death. We see him. We've seen him in his resurrection. Okay, and so they were announcing the resurrection of Jesus. They were doing something that had to be done. They were laying the foundation for what would become the church. Okay, and once that's done, you don't need to continue to lay a foundation. Okay, so what that means, this really was a unique and unrepeatable office because there's nobody alive today who has seen the physically resurrected and ascended body of Jesus, right? There is no one alive today who accompanied Jesus in his, you know, in his ministry from the time of his baptism all the way through. Okay, and so we started with 12 apostles. Paul was added and describes his exception clause in 1 Corinthians. Um, but outside of that, he, Paul also calls himself the last apostle. So we have scripture that teaches us that there is no succession beyond the initial foundation layers of the church. Okay? And so we're not looking for any kind of succession in terms of this kind of authority in the church. And so what's interesting about this, and again, um, as they went out, because that's what these 12 did, they went out and they announced the good news. We're going to see it next week as we begin to see what happens at Pentecost. We're going to see how that happens. They began to announce that Jesus was raised from the dead. They went out and testified. They said, hey, can I tell you something? Jesus actually rose from the dead bodily. You know, you might not know this, but there was a, <laughs> there was a Jew who claimed to be the Messiah. His name was Jesus, and he did these miracles. He did these wonders. People couldn't figure it out. They were intrigued but not sure. He was crucified, and then he rose from the dead, and I saw it. I saw it. I saw him raised from the dead. These witnesses, as they went out, they found that people believed it. Isn't that interesting? As they went out and they began to tell people, look, he rose from the dead and we saw it. People believed. People believed. And as they thought through and processed, well, what is it that made people believe? I mean, that's pretty fantastic if you think about it. The, the, that somebody would hear a story like that and actually and actually believe it. I mean, it's kind of incredible if you think about it. It really is. It's incredible. It's hard to provide, it's hard to give credibility to that kind of testimony, and yet people believed. We find out that it's because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was using their testimony to create faith in people. Okay, and that is something that continues on today. As you hear the message of Jesus, as you hear about his death and his resurrection, it gives you faith. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing the message of Jesus Christ. And so for those of you who haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, those of you who haven't yet, maybe you're still exploring, maybe you're completely unconvinced, God's Spirit uses the announcement of Jesus' resurrection to give you faith. As you hear the message, as you hear that there were people who knew Jesus and saw him raised from the dead, they not only saw it, but they gave their lives to help other people understand it. 
and most of them actually died for it. That produces faith. It produces faith. And so that was the, the, the role that the apostles had back then. Now today, for us, leadership, it's really, it's designed to, it's, it's designed to feed and lead. And when you think about leadership in the church, starting from ordained leadership with pastors and elders, the, the call for pastors and elders is to feed and lead the church. Okay, my job is to feed and lead all of you. This is what we read in Ephesians 4, that God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What that means is that all of ordained leadership, like my job is to feed you and to equip you so that you can do ministry, so that you can serve Jesus, serve his people, and serve the world that he's come to save. You know, and so it's, it's kind of like we've got to make this agreement here. We, you know, I think in some ways when you called me to be your pastor, we did this. But like, I'm committing to you that I am going, if I don't do anything else, I'm going to feed you with God's word. I want to give you God's word. I want to teach it to you, explain it to you, help you understand the significance of it so that you can work it out in your lives. That's my commitment to you is I want to feed you with God's word. And your responsibility then is to do the work of the ministry. It's to be the hands and feet of Jesus. It's to serve him with all your heart. It's to love this church and to serve it, care about it. And then it's to take the the mercy and grace of Jesus and go out to the world. I mean, that's what we are buying into as a church. And that's exciting because we can't tell people, I've seen the risen Jesus. But what we can do is we can say, this is what he's done in my life. This is how he's changed me. This is how his word has made a difference. This is how I've become a different person. This is how I've learned to handle my issues of anger. This is how I've learned to grow wiser about the way I make decisions. When we do that, we testify to the reality of his resurrection. And again, we become witnesses in the, with a small W, right? We're not like apostles in the sense that they were, but we then testify um, where Jesus was looking to reconstitute Israel. We are now pictures in a sense of the new humanity, of what God's desire is for how people should live their lives. And it's neat because it could have been that after Judas, after the Judas incident happened, that Jesus could have said, well, you know what? When I trust people, things go bad. I'm not going to do that anymore. But what we see here in this passage is that Jesus stays committed to using men and women, to using people to carry out his ministry on earth. He's entrusted that to us. He's not going to take that trust back. And he'll let us screw it up if we do. Um, you know, he'll come and get in our kitchen too in, in that process. Um, but the good news is, like, as we think about the dawning task of now, how do we actually do this? We've got the commitment of Jesus, not just from his word, but from his own life, his death, and his resurrection. We read this in, our, in, the, in the confession, in the assurance of, or wait, no, we didn't. We, we alluded to it, to Ephesians 5. You know, when you think about the church, it's good to know how Jesus feels about the church. It says that uh, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself is its savior. 
And so as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to and everything to their husbands. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, me, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's Jesus' heart for us, is that he would wash us and cleanse us with his own word and with his blood. If you're not being what Jesus wants you to be, if you haven't been what Jesus wants you to be, if you've betrayed Jesus, today Jesus would say, I died for you and will take you back if you confess your sins and return to me. And not only will I cleanse you, but I will make you holy and without blemish. And while you live on this earth and struggle to try to be holy and without blemish, Jesus says, you know what? Your being holy and without blemish in some ways has nothing to do with what you do, but it has to do with what I've done. Because as I work in you and try to help you get, clean up your life, as I help you work on your mess, at the same time I'm wrapping you with a robe of perfect holiness. I've taken off my own perfect life and I wrap it around you so that as far as God is concerned, you are already holy and without blemish the moment you put your faith in me. That's good news. That's the assurance that we need to have as we struggle to be the church, as we struggle to be honest about our problems and come to solution with our problems, as we strive to promote good leadership within the church, we need that cleansing from Jesus and being wrapped up in a robe of his righteousness, his holiness, his blemishlessness. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. We want to be a church that can be a truly healing community. We want to be a place that is accepting, that is patient, uh, but that is wise too. Lord, we want, to, we want to grow. We want to become able to do the work of the ministry. We want to represent you well. And so we need your grace. We need your spirit to empower us. And we need a vision of you covering us with your blood and then wrapping us in your own righteousness. We need that to keep us hopeful to keep us filled with visions of what you've done that can motivate us and can compel us to want to serve and love each other. Jesus, help us to be like this church that we've read about. We pray this for your sake. Amen.